Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, lockdown lovers, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the intercontinental podcast with me, Conrad, ordering way too much online in Cambridge, UK. Ah, and me, Dan, cooking up a storm in Melbourne, Australia. We focus on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, fantasy and horror because we love conspiracy theories, riding horseback in our pyjamas and ex-psychos in a computerised control room. <laughs> Hello, Dan. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. Uh, cooking a lot, eating a lot. Not exercising as much, but oh, <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> that's not good. So is it all elasticated waistbands in your house at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of uh, PJ wearing, slipper wearing attire. Uh, also, it's dropped considerably in temperature over here in Melbourne, mm. so it's a lot colder. I know cold to Australians does not mean cold <laughs> to a Brit, but... <laughs> We will no. complain, nonetheless. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm, as I say, I'm just spending way too much time ordering things on Amazon that I just don't oh, need. Yes. Um, but I just want parcels to come here because <laughs> I'm bored. <laughs> and then I have to leave them in quite... I'm paranoid. I put them in quarantine in my garage for... 48 hours and won't touch them. Oh, yes. I would I would probably do the same thing. Ordering far too much, my credit card bill is not going to be pretty. Good retail therapy, though. Yeah, it's true. Speaking of parcels, anything in our uh, mailbag? Yes, we do. And I don't have to put it in quarantine for 48 hours. I can just read it, which is great. Lots of love for Flight of the Navigator. And there's a very similar theme in all of them. So first we have Matt Fisher 79 who said, brilliant episode about one of my favourite films growing up. Mm. We also had Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. Who said, Flight of the Navigator was one of my childhood faves. And while I definitely think the tension sort of dries up soon after the hero enters the ship, it's still got a clever enough premise and a solid foundational first half that I'd recommend it to anyone as a top tier kids film. Mm. Family favourite, I think. Yeah. Also, Beach Boy Nick said, great episode. Completely agree with Duncan and Dan about the stairs of the spacecraft. When I think of that film, I automatically think of those stairs, such a great effect. Oh, yeah. I think we left it out of the episode, but was it you that revealed that the stairs were done by a magician? Yes, I still can't find the name of the magician that they consulted with, but yeah, they, they asked somebody how to do it. And I have to make a correction because we were talking about it as being an example of early CGI effects like liquid metal effects from Terminator 2, uh -huh. but predating them. But actually it's not. Oh. So I read that CGI was not used to depict the suspended steps leading into the ship. The effect of the door liquefying to form them was achieved through stop motion animation by creating a series of metallic sculptures for every frame 
24 frames a second. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, wow. I initially did think it was stop motion. It just seemed too good. Yeah, it's amazing work and even more heartbreaking. Apparently the guy that did it was then later told that they'd changed the number of steps from five to four or something because of practical reasons. So he had to do it again. <laughs> oh, it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. It, in physical form, yes, they appear to support David's weight with a simple optical illusion. They were mounted on thin beams which were angled away from the camera so that you couldn't see them. And this arrangement even allowed for slight camera movement, as can be seen the first time he climbs them, which Duncan mm. mentioned. Great trivia. Mm. Lovely trivia and a little bit of a correction. So thanks, everyone, for the flight of the Navigator, love. I wonder if yeah. we're going to love today's movie, Dan. Well, I'll just go retrieve it and we'll find out. Ah, oh, I think I have to ride a horse. Oh. <laughs> Unusual. <laughs> oh, not very good at this. Maybe you should have worn something other than your PJs. I know. <laughs> this bathrobe is a bit breezy. <laughs> This is taking ages. <laughs> you suck, oubliette. <laughs> okay, here's the film. All right, I got back a lot faster. <laughs> That's lucky. Hey, don't snap at me, you. Okay, I'm back. Welcome back. And I have with me Winter Kills, the 1979 oh. government conspiracy thriller film directed by William Richard. Oh. So it's based on a book by Richard Condon, and it stars Jeff Bridges, John Huston, Anthony Perkins, Eli Wallach, Sterling Hayden, Dorothy Maloney, Thomas Millian, and Belinda Bauer. Oh. Winter Kills centers on Nick Keegan, the brother of the assassinated President Timothy Keegan, as he attempts to unravel the Enigma Code of conspiracies, false leads and lies surrounding his brother's death. Aided by his Hugh Hefner-like womanising father and his headstrong good, then bad, but then good again girlfriend, Yvette, Nick goes from real-life tank war games to mobster coffee houses to an apparent all-seeing Bond villain headquarters to uncover the truth. Every single scene in this movie is bizarre beyond comprehension. Join us as we solve the conundrum and find out what does winter actually kill after the break? <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> and we will have a guest to uh, maybe explain a few things. Yeah, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Our special guest today is the writer-director behind such films as The Signal, the My Super Psycho Sweet 16 trilogy and Synchronicity. And he's been so busy since we last had the opportunity to speak with him, he has not one but two movies in post-production. We're thrilled to welcome back Jacob Gentry. Hey! Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. 
I mean, I'm doing great because I'm talking to you guys. Obviously, the <laughs> world is a, an apocalypse. So that's, you know, I'm doing as great as you can do. I, I, I adapt really quickly, right? Like, I'm mm. kind of the Rick Grimes of uh, shut-in, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I already got my cowboy hat, and I know this is an audio podcast, so they can't see. You guys can see that I have my cowboy hat my six-shooter and everything. Mm. <laughs> do you have a small child called Carl to worry about? <laughs> <laughs> when the world is falling apart, and the leaders are making major mistakes on a continuous basis. Uh, what better thing to talk about than conspiracy thrillers? I know. I was thinking as I was watching today's movie that it seems incredibly apt and perhaps even more relevant now than it was <laughs> when it was made. Why did you choose this movie for us, Jacob? Kick us off and explain your relationship to this movie. Well, I've really been into conspiracy thriller, paranoid conspiracy thriller movies, because the movie I've been editing that I shot uh, last year was is sort of in the vein of the the great sort of paranoid 70s conspiracy thriller movies. Movies like The Conversation, The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, Domino Principle. I got a list here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Capricorn <laughs> One, which you guys had already talked about. And then mm-hmm. my sort of all-time favorite of those, which is actually kind of a post-post conspiracy thriller movie, Blowout which might be my favorite movie. Yeah. And what I like most about these sort of conspiracy thrillers, it's always like a journalist or someone who isn't, whose job isn't to solve crimes, having to sort of uncover a conspiracy, right? So mm-hmm. if it's like a CIA agent, it's not as interesting as if it's like a journalist like like Warren Beatty in Parallax View or All the President's Men, you know, Woodward and Bernstein or Nick Keegan, a rich slacker heir <laughs> to a fortune. Yeah, I guess that one of the things that struck me the moment we started watching it is how I felt like I was on familiar turf in some respects, because having just done Bird with a Crystal Plumage, watching a film in which a man who isn't a professional investigator in any way, shape or form, he's a writer, trying to investigate a crime he witnesses at the beginning, only to be interrupted by a steady flow of increasingly insane cameos (laughs) from great character actors, and then ultimately not find out the answer. And when he does, it doesn't really make a great deal of sense. Um, I thought that, uh, yeah, this was strangely familiar. What did you think, Dan? Yeah, I was confused throughout this whole movie. I mean, <laughs> the whole conspiracy twisting and turning with the plot line was, yeah, very, very confusing. I keep having to rewind scenes and I didn't catch a lot of information first time. And yeah, a lot of the scenes I did find, they were mostly normal. Yes. <laughs> except for one thing that made it really bizarre. <laughs> Do you see that as a positive or a negative? I don't. I was confused through this movie just trying to figure out its tone because it's so polarizing with its tone. Sometimes it's just so ridiculous it's funny and other times it's, I guess, supposed to be very profound and serious. You know, people dying left, right and center. But then you'll have him riding horseback in his pajamas <laughs> and with this huge score and this beautiful, stunning landscape in the background. <laughs> and then he jumps off and just says, you stink, pa, which is <laughs> the last thing I expected him to yell at the end of that scene. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm still a, a bit bewildered by this movie. One of my favorite examples of that element that you talk about in every scene is the scene where you 
you have Anthony Perkins, ostensibly this uber supervillain who is bugging every phone, following every bit of information, and he's got this Bond supervillain-like layer that's full of towering machines and blinking lights. And in the middle of it are two guys playing ping pong. I thought that too. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> It's like a Zucker Brothers movie. Yeah. It's like Airplane or Top Secret. That There's just this one element in there that completely subverts the seriousness of the moment. I think there's a lot of thought put into this movie. And sure. I think Richard had two things going on with all this stuff at the same time. I think he did find certain things funny, but I also think he always had them be relevant to the story or had some kind of metaphorical element going on with those things, right? Because you could argue any of the goofy or weird moments if you really break it down like touches that can be seen as ridiculous but are also not maybe that ridiculous when you think about you know what the movie is saying you know things like the giant chess pieces from the beginning which cost like a hundred thousand dollars because they actually spent a lot of money on this movie wow the behind the scenes of this uh, stories of this movie is almost as interesting as the movie itself but um but if you look in the background of john houston's office towards the end of the movie one of those pieces is in there oh, and there's like cannons and things as if they are pieces on the chessboard that are all in his office. So there's all those little details like that, that I just keep noticing every time I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, that's something I thought was kind of ridiculous. And like Conrad said, like Zucker Brothers gag in the background, but it actually is is like a story element. So when this movie is firing in all cylinders, it has it's kind of both serious and funny and also saying something really interesting visually and with the story. Yeah, I love that in that opening title sequence, Jeff Bridges's name comes up against the porn, oh. which is so perfect for his position in the movie because he's essentially just being bounced from one piece to the next, watching them get eliminated mm. and not really learning anything. The whole thing seems like a game, but even at the end of it, you're not entirely sure who's in control of it all. But that's kind of the case with a lot of this in this genre. Mm. You know, if we are putting this in the paranoid conspiracy thriller genre, and especially that sort of era of the 70s, then there are echoes of this movie in the subsequent movies that I put in this genre. Actually, there's like a sub-sub-genre of paranoid thriller, <laughs> or maybe it's just like a genre of thriller that is sort of tangent to the paranoid thriller, which is like what I call the SoCal noir movies. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the best ones of those that also has its toe also in the paranoid conspiracy thriller movie is a movie called Cutter's Way which Jeff Bridges made pretty soon after he made this movie. Uh, Jeff Bridges is at peak hotness, so <laughs> hot in that movie. Uh, once again, playing a sort of dilettante rich guy who is kind of broke now, but he came from a really rich family living in Marina del Rey, and he's kind of sleeping around to get money from people, and it has a very similar opening scene to Shampoo. <laughs> anyway, they kind of end up in the exact same place which is Jeff Bridges on the floor taking a gun from a guy on the ground and pointing it. Not to spoil anything, because that doesn't really tell you anything other than that. And anyone listening who's actually seen Cutter's Way would be like, yes, there is there is a shot that is almost identical in both movies. Oh, wow. And there's something about Jeff Bridges being the unlikely Alice through the, <laughs> through the looking glass or what have you. It's just someone who is kind of reluctantly dragged through this and can kind of be both someone who is naive and almost like adult, but he has so much heart and soul and like a weird kind of 
childlike wisdom, if that makes sense. Mm. There's something about just the way he reacts, which you're like, he may be the dumbest person, but he has the potential to be the smartest person. Mm. <laughs> Richard Boone the actor who plays Kaifetz, mm. the guy who basically acted all his scenes drunk, but has these <laughs> wonderful little moments. Like Dan, maybe one of the moments you're talking about is towards the beginning when he's, after they get the statement from the guy who says he's complicit in the assassination, and he just points at the guy taking notes and he puts his finger up, basically like the come here finger, and he keeps his finger held up like he's pulling him on a string <laughs> out the door. He talks to me. He's like, you were only just a kid when this happened. And basically like, don't tell anybody because everyone has died. And then he just kind of like keeps his finger up, holding him and pulling him along. But then the scene just ends. So you think there's there's going to be like a sort of button, but it just kind of ends at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. There are lots of places in this movie like that where it sort of sets itself up as though it's about to deliver on its conspiracy thriller setup. But then it cuts away almost immediately. One of my favourite characters, Sterling Hayden, the billionaire military industrialist who plays with tanks hmm. on his private battlefield, he threatens to chase Nick off his property in a tank and starts counting down and saying he's going to give him a head start. But rather than you seeing that scene, you cut to Nick relaxing on a jet plane, whereupon he almost has a collision with a passenger jet, uh, Airport 75, Karen Black style, but straight after it flies past, you just cut again to him somewhere else and he never even mentions it again. The scene where a maid attacks him in his own apartment, but it just turns into a French maid farce and she gets her breasts exposed and runs out of the building. Mm. And that never really resolves itself. I beg to differ, but we can talk about that. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, there is a follow-up conversation about it, at least. But then there's the scene where he visits some hoodlums in a diner. Oh, yes. And then when he leaves, it explodes. And that you don't even finish the explosion before you cut to him just walking into another room doing something else. It's really interesting the way that it's, it sort of sets up all of these things that would, in a traditional movie, be the exciting payoffs, the sort of thing that you slap down your money for, but then just sort of dispenses with them as though it's not really interested in following through with them. Well, I think there are two reasons for that, but I think that they both kind of work to the advantage of each other. I think first... A technical reason is that they reshot this movie like three different times over the course of like two years, hmm. right? So they started shooting, they ran out of money. Oh, wow. Basically, the movie was funded with weed dealer money. These guys who had who had distributed the Emmanuel movies <laughs> and they were major weed dealers but said that they were movie producers they had basically been paying for it with weed dealer money, basically Stop. like from the drug trade, <laughs> Sterling and gold. One of those two guys, Goldberg, was shot, chained to the bed and shot in the back of the head wow. because of drug money that he owed. He told the mafia loan sharks or whatever that, that took his life, you know, that he needed to finish this movie so he could pay them back, which was a lie, of course, because, you know, that's ridiculous to even think that. And then the other one, right before the movie premiered in 1979... The other producer, Sterling, was actually sentenced to like 40 years in prison for drug trafficking. So oh, they had wow. to basically, they started shooting in 1977. Then they stopped again and they started shooting again like six months later. You know, and every time they would get shut down by the unions or not having enough money or, you know, one of the producers getting shot in the back of the head. <laughs> uh, 
but they never had the money to pay for it. And then finally they, they went back and finished it. And the only reason they did was because everyone involved, even Vilmos Zygmunt, who had literally just got an Oscar from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm. But they were all really committed. John Huston was really committed. Jeff Bridges was really committed. And I think it was just the charm and the charisma of this writer-director and his enthusiasm and his energy and his manicness that like sort of kept it alive. Even despite not getting paid, they still were wanting to finish it. So it was really disjointed. And I imagine that there was a lot of stuff from that. Mm. I think it has to do with the labyrinthine nature and the convolution of all those things, which you could apply to the JFK assassination. You know, basically when Sterling Hayden is basically running down through all the different people who could have killed his brother or whatever, basically all these different forces kind of coming together to conspire is kind of similar if you watch a movie like JFK, right? Hmm. You know, if you watch the movie JFK and you have Donald Sutherland sitting on the bench next to Kevin Costner going, who benefited the most, blah, blah, you know, and you go through that three hour odyssey of a movie, which I think is a fantastic movie, but I, I still don't absorb like all of it. You think about all the different forces in that movie that could be to blame. Mm. The convoluted nature of the conspiracy actually is what makes it an interesting conspiracy. Mm. And I think it's what makes it a prescient movie. There's one line that Kaifitz has, I think sums up the rage and confusion and potential reasons for depression that we could have right now in the world, especially in the States with our leader, I even just like almost vomited in my mouth calling him a leader. But um, I don't even want to, all right, I'm not even going to go there in the real life events, but just to say that it's prescient. So. He goes, they will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to, you know? And it's like, that's it. It's like, they'll keep piling these lies on top of each other until you get so confused that you don't even want to fucking solve the crime anymore. And that's kind of the whole thing that, John Huston is doing to Jeff Bridges in this movie, basically everyone's giving him the runaround. And the whole thing was just to like send him on a wild goose chase so that he didn't make the connection that his father was the one. That's kind of like why I, I think it's like either this the disjointed photography and then it's also like, I think the story. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did want to clarify because I'm just an idiot, but some of the plot points in this movie, I just didn't really understand. Uh, was every lead false? Because uh, Yvette, she was his girlfriend, but then she turned out to not be working for the magazine, and then she was an actress, and then she was dead. So I wasn't even sure about her character. What, who was she working for? She was hired to play a character. This is like the most convoluted fucking thing in the world. <laughs> so Yvette was supposed to be the actual daughter, Maggie Dawson, of Sterling Hayden's character, ZK Dawson. But then he wasn't actually ZK Dawson. ZK Dawson was living in South America. But that all is explained, basically, that for whatever reason, they hired an impersonator for a character that Jeff Bridges wouldn't have known whether it was the real person or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh -huh. I don't know if that answered your question, Dan, other than to say it's really fucking confusing and I, you're not an idiot. This movie doesn't make any fucking sense. The one thing that I wanted to ask you guys and plead for you because it's been like keeping me up at night is so if it's revealed at the end that Kaifitz is an assassin and he's working for Pa Keegan and basically he's in on this like ruse. First of all, why did he fake his own death? Which seems pointless. 
it felt like Chewbacca in fucking <laughs> Rise of the Skywalker or some shit where it was just like, great, why did you even have to fake his death? Like, that's so stupid. Yeah, sure. But it's not Star Wars, so it's not infuriating. I wondered if they were worried that he wouldn't come back for another day's shooting or something. <laughs> <laughs> Chewbacca? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, Boone, but it could be either. <laughs> but, like, why do they fake his death? And then have him come back. No, because he comes back and he's like, I faked my death because of blah, blah, blah. But the only reason that Jeff Bridges knows that he was dead is because his dad told him. Because he's. <laughs> but the thing I don't understand is why, if the whole thing was to distract Jeff Bridges from knowing what the truth was, why did he bring the guy to start the conspiracy in the first place? Mm. I don't understand Kaifetz and like why he did what he did. Because there's a lot of people who lied about who they were. Like the police captain in the beginning mm. who was like drunk and incompetent, you know? Mm. Wrong building and went down the wrong, <laughs> into the wrong room. Yeah. yeah, and staggered across a busy intersection, which was not planned, apparently. He just <laughs> right. turned around in the middle of shooting and just staggered across a busy intersection holding his hand up. But thankfully, because of the costume he was wearing, the traffic stopped. Oh, right. <laughs> But, like, he's an imposter, too. Yeah. Trust me, if I hadn't watched this movie and studied it and had watched it multiple times, I wouldn't even known as much as I do. Mm. Almost everything tracks. It's asinine and ludicrous, but almost everything tracks except for the Kaifetz thing, which I just still don't understand. No. Anyway, I don't know if you guys have any insight on that. But. No. <laughs> I, I was equally as confused, especially at the end with him showing up and trying to kill Nick. Uh, I, I I don't know. Why would you start the conspiracy and plant that seed of doubt in Nick in the first place? Mm. I don't. I just didn't understand. Why start this whole conspiracy at all? Why not live on happily ignorant? Well, there'd be no movie. <laughs> well, of course, of course, there would be. <laughs> For all its chicanery, I think there probably is a solution to the film. I think everything does tie in together because the film is so richly and densely written. Yeah. There are so many hints right at the very beginning to the revelations that you get later on in the movie, planted in early on. So one character says to Nick, I guess the assassin thought he could hide if he worked for the president's father which makes it all the more obvious who he's actually working for from the very beginning and who's behind all of this. Mm. And at one point, Nick's father says to him, if you catch this killer, you'll be a legend like your brother. Well, one of the essential parts of being a legend is being dead. So <laughs> is he threatening his second son now? <laughs> but in, in either case, I just kept noticing all these places in the movie where it just kept hinting at things that were to come and you only notice them the second time around. Yeah. So you do think it's richly written. That's good to hear. Mm. I don't know if you guys found this, but I found it as a movie that really takes on different shapes the more times you watch it. The first time you watch it, it's like an oddity. It feels more bonkers than it is. And it's like, what movie is this? And why <laughs> isn't it like a midnight movie all the time? But as I watched it further, there was actually a lot more legitimately good Mm. rich textural screenwriting going on there that's actually very surprising. I know a lot of it's not in the book and is actually in the script. I mean, I know the novelist actually was a huge fan of the movie. Richard Condon actually wrote a whole thing for Harper's Bazaar. Like his own conspiracy theory about the movie is the reason the movie didn't do well or the reason that Avco Embassy pulled it from distribution after a week 
was because the parent company, Avco, had military contracts <laughs> with the government. And then also there was a Ted Kennedy connection with those military contracts and that Ted Kennedy was running for president around the time that this movie came out. Wow. <laughs> it's like a pretty surprisingly well-written movie the more you kind of dive into it, right? I think it is, yeah. And I love all of the dialogue. Yeah. I mean, John Huston's dialogue is the standout, obviously, because he's just hilarious and so off-colour. And it's Amazing. it's very deliberate how racist, homophobic and sexist mm. he was being throughout the movie. But he delivers it with such glee and gusto and self-assurance that it's kind of intoxicating and it's exactly right for the character he's playing and reportedly because John Huston knew Joseph Kennedy oh, wow. and hated his guts <laughs> and was really thrilled to bring his interpretation of him to the screen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. John Huston delivering dialogue is endlessly enjoyable to me. I mean, his voice is so good that that's Daniel Day-Lewis used it for one of his greatest performances in There Will Be Blood. You know, it's like <laughs> the way he talks. He talks like with that. What does he say? He says, son, what do you think these girls are doing under this? Playing with my nuts. Yeah. So it's like, even when he's saying playing with my nuts, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's a fabulous scene in and of itself, his entrance, which is at the head of a flotilla of golf carts, flanked by beautiful women that could be Miss America pageant rejects, who he suggests could be fondling him under a blanket. It just seems so prescient in terms of where we are now. Yeah. In the timeless aspect of evil oligarchs. Mm. <laughs> that character is probably prescient in every decade, mm. but never more so than now. Yeah. You know, having seen it periodically and then watching it, you know, earlier this year and then even watching it in the last couple months, it takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> like, <laughs> and as I was breaking down all the scenes, I was like, every scene has something good in it or something interesting in it. You know, it's like that Kubrick thing of like, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It just has to be interesting. Like, even if you turn the sound off in the scene where John Huston comes into Jeff Bridges' room and sits on the bed with his robe open and his skinny ass legs and just like <laughs> sits there talking to him, calling him a loser, ask him if he's gay and stuff. And you're just like, I can't turn away from this. It's just so fucking fascinating, you know? Mm. I do feel like every single character was very fascinating. But I, I wish that lasted longer, though. Like I, even that, that sort of chief of police that at the start, there's just like a bumbling idiot. I thought, oh, okay, we're going to see him more. I agree. And then he just dies. And like his, his girlfriend, I thought she was a really compelling character. She was headstrong. She was empowered. And then she just dies. And I don't know, just all these people just keep dying. The big mob boss in the prison mm. vehicle was supposedly in jail, even though he's in his full mob get up and a cane and everything with the hat. He was amazing. I thought, wow, we're going to see more of it. No. We didn't mm. see him again. <laughs> Just more. I wanted more of the characters to kind of come back. Mm. Have you seen Parallax View? I haven't. No, unfortunately. It's the movie that sort of defines the tropes. And that was only a few years before this movie. And that movie has a very, very similar structure. Right. And there's even less sort of like explicitness to the story and to the actual like what's actually happening in the movie in Parallax View as there is in Winter Kills. And it also feels the same way in the sense that it feels like certain scenes are missing. Mm. I mean, I agree with you in a lot of ways, Dan, but I also feel like you find that there is a sort of lingering too long thing that we do now or that's in the last 20, 30 years that, you know, movies don't end at the end. You know, movies from the 40s and 50s, especially the 30s and 40s, the minute the story's over, 
the end. Mm-hmm. Credits come up. You know what I mean? It's done. Once you've resolved the central conflict, yeah. <laughs> yeah. then the movie's over. There's nothing else that needs to be said. And and that feels very abrupt to us now. Mm. And so I agree with you for the most part, but I think it's just a question of like cinematic language for the period. You know what I mean? Mm. And this movie might even feel like antiquated if we were to watch it in 1979. Mm. Yeah, like sure. I think it would feel old fashioned. Because the cast were all people who became famous in the 50s and 60s. Not all of them, but most of them were like sort of has-beens or on their way to has-been by this time. Mm. Maybe that movie, this movie would definitely feel nostalgic in 1979, even though I was only two years old and I don't fucking know. But there are two places where I'm like, it drives me fucking nuts both times. And it just feels like they just didn't have the money or they didn't have the time or someone made a bad decision or cocaine or alcohol caused this. The explosion scene, which that whole sequence leading up to it is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It is great. It seems like a cliche, but only because a lot of movies that happened after it, you know, Mm. but the slow push in on the gangster in the back and all the sort of really obvious gangsters. And you have like the Nicholas Rogue don't look now kind of like woman on the bicycle Mm. riding by, which, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the untouchables. You know what I mean? Where where it's like, mister, you forgot your bag or whatever. And mm-hmm. so you know that something bad's going to happen. He walks out. And not only is it like a terrible effect. Yeah. Like even for the time, <laughs> terrible effect. Because there's some yeah. actually pretty good effects in this movie, especially yeah. like practical effects. Like if I saw that in like a 30s movie, I'd be like, this looks bad. Yeah. Mm. Was that a composite? Yeah. Because it wasn't in the scene, was it? No, it looks like it's just rotoscoped on. But like by Ralph Bakshi. Yeah. it's. <laughs> it just looks like somebody <laughs> drew on it, but they didn't finish it. I don't know. Yeah. That's terrible. But it also cuts off in the middle of the explosion. Yeah. yeah. It's like a split second. So that scene drives me nuts because the effects are bad. I feel like that is so abrupt, mm. like you're talking about, Dan. And then the other one is when he goes to see Pa Keegan at the end, kind of for the right before the big climax, he walks towards the building and then they cut to the elevator opening and these guys have already roughed him up. Yeah. And it feels like even though they kind of are just like, well, we don't need to see that. It feels like it's something missing because it takes you a second to even realize what's happening. Yeah. yeah. So it's one thing if they just feel like something was missing, but we're just getting on with the movie. Like we're getting on with the show, right? Mm. Like we're heading towards the end. All right, we get it. They roughed him up and whatever. But it, like, I don't know if you guys did this, but I rewound the movie several times the first time I saw it to go like, wait, am I missing a scene? Yeah. I don't know. There's a few scenes like that, but those two are the most egregious as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Conrad, you got something intriguing to share? I was just going to come up with the trivia nugget that William Richard, he didn't want Dorothy Malone in the movie. He actually wanted Dorothy Maguire, the mum in Old Yeller. But he got the surnames confused, sent an offer out to the wrong actress and didn't realise his mistake until he met her in her trailer. Oh, wow. I think that's great. <laughs> oh, no. Literally the exact same thing happened with Fernando Ray and the French right. Connection, William Freakin, like, thought it was somebody else. <laughs> 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 and it became a star from that movie. <laughs> wow. And that's our random trivia. I would like to ask a question, though. Why is it called Winter Kills? I think it's probably more evident in the novel, but I kind of hearken it back to that scene that's really actually one of the most sort of emotional scenes without any kind of humor in it, where he's talking to his mom 
and she says, we'll have a big Easter parade and she starts to tear up mm. and it's like a really, really like I, I, that scene like gets me emotional every time I watch it. And she's like, we'll have a big Easter party and we'll get all our friends. And she just wants some fucking human connection mm. because her husband doesn't pay attention to her and her son off doing whatever on a boat somewhere. And she's just trying to connect with him so bad. And he says, it's winter, mom. Mm. There's a seasons of these sort of events. And maybe that's, I don't know. It's probably in the book really explicitly. Maybe Conrad secretly knows why it's called that. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, I, this is like the moment when Conrad usually pulls out the, well, actually, it comes from, <laughs> in the original Shakespearean text of King Lear. <laughs> So, so Rudy, was he the big bad guy or was Pa Keegan the big bad guy? I'm still confused. Oh, so Rudy? Yes. <laughs> it's an interesting idea. I quite like the idea that it's all Saruti, the wizard behind the curtain that's controlling all of this, especially when it's played by somebody who is just so devastatingly intelligent and disturbing as Anthony Perkins mm, <laughs> was in yeah. this movie. I love that when William Richard went to him and said, I would like you in this movie, Anthony Perkins said to him, well, I get why you want me in this movie, but why should I be? in this movie oh, and, <laughs> and William Richard immediately understood that he was being tested and he said can you imagine anybody else pulling this character off and Anthony Perkins took a break and thought no you're right mm. <laughs> and, then, and then did the movie he is brilliant in it and there is that first shot of him where he appears to be God, sort of yeah. with the earth below him, <laughs> just talking down to Nick over the phone. It does hint towards him being the overall controller. Mm. The ultimate conclusion that I arrived at is that the whole machine in and of itself just supports itself and there is nobody who is ultimately in control, which is a sort of anarchic version that you see in some paranoid thrillers. Sure, It's like an ecosystem of evil, right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's actually another element that I found really prescient and relevant to today, which is that like, well, you could say it's Donald Trump or Putin, mm. or you could say that it's Mark Zuckerberg yeah. because they have such influence. And I like the idea that it's not even about empathy. It's like, what does Solaris want? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's a wrong question to ask. It's like, what does Saruti want? That's the wrong question to ask. He doesn't care about that because he has access to all of the data. It's such an, an amazing sort of relevant thing about him just being like the sort of embodiment of Google mm. or all of the tech companies pushed together. And I like that he's really someone who influences all of these events through data acquisition. Yeah. Sure. You know, basically because he can just sort of like acquire data on every single person and listen to conversations wherever he wants. And he's so brilliant, but he's almost like he's Hal or something. Yeah. It's almost like he's an AI. <laughs> you know, if they remade this movie now, it's like he would be a hologram. Yeah. You know, he's like a Westworld character or something. You know yeah, what I mean? Sure. I like the idea that when you get to the end, there's nothing there. It points to what lies underneath the whole phenomenon of conspiracy theories to begin with, that the human mind is desperate for a pattern. Right. We're fairly certain that when anything really terrible happens, that there must be a really complicated solution to it that leads to one person with a definitive goal. Sure. And we manufacture it as much as we possibly can. And when you finally get to the truth of it, there ends up being nothing there other than a conspiracy of incompetence and failure 
And so the net result was just a load of systems that are all badly designed because people are more interested in greed and cutting cost and so on. And the result of this system is this moral vacuum and there's no intelligence at the heart of this thing. Mm. It's just a collection of bad intent that results in this thing happening and there really isn't a pattern there at all. And I think that's what this movie really gets across better than anything else that I've seen. Right, yes. There really isn't an answer. Yeah. And Kefitz's speech is more more relevant now than ever when you have a president that's propped up by a propaganda machine coincidentally supported by an algorithm that pushes everybody towards hate and fear. (laughs) Yeah, it seems incredibly prescient and probably more telling than even they imagined at the time is where I arrived at when I finished watching it. Right, right, right. Once again, you get to the point a lot quicker and succinctly and more brilliantly than I could in all of my... (laughs) That's that's a really I really like that take a lot. It reminds me of Hanlon's razor. It's kind of a play on Occam's razor. It's kind of the old saying that basically it's dangerous to mistake incompetence for malice. Mm. I found this quote from the writer who said, I meant winter kills to be a revelation of the interlocking defenses and assault systems of a really modern conspiracy against a single man. Mm. A conspiracy gives order to that which is just a series of what seem like insane coincidences, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And because stories are such a huge part of our life to give our life meaning and because we've become so refined in our stories that we don't even like illusions or metaphors that have too much of a one-to-one ratio with them. I think like what you said, Conrad, it is trying to make order out of those things. And you bring up a really good point that I didn't think about, which is like even the conversation that Dan and I were having earlier is actually where the like sort of contextual like genius of this movie even kind of comes into play. Like it makes me think it's even more brilliant because it's like us sort of trying to give order and pattern to something that is almost nonsense yeah, or so convoluted that it's supposed to confuse us is that we're confused in the same way that Jeff Bridges' character is. Definitely. Well, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Even the last scene of this movie with Yvette's phone message, it's... I mean, that's a lie as well. I mean, she wasn't in love with him. She wasn't even a real person. No. And that's the last lingering kind of... A grace note for the film. Yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of like, but what do I feel now? Yeah. Do I feel remorse and, and sadness for a person that wasn't even real? Mm. I'm confused. <laughs> what I love about that is, that, again, how well written this movie is. That's even hinted at before it happens as well. Yeah. Because Jeff Bridges calls her on her answer phone and usually just gets her message all the Mm. time and then when he finally gets her he shouts I can't believe you're real which of course she isn't (laughs) when you watch it a second time this movie is full of stuff like that I totally agree with you Conrad and like when she says excuse me he says I want to marry you I want to make a I want to have an honest marriage with you she says well I'll just give you the tape to my machine (laughs) and you'll have me all all the time (laughs) and especially when you consider like tapes and how much they have to do with like Uh, conspiracy theory movies and everything but also there's a sort of nihilism and an emptiness that comes with that that is something that also ties it to movies of the period and movies of that sort of wave and genre i mean one of the most interesting things about this movie that i didn't even for whatever reason didn't compute the first few times i saw it was like one of my all-time favorite movies is blowout and this movie has virtually the exact same ending Mm-hmm. You guys have seen Blah, right? Mm. <laughs> I haven't actually seen it. <gasps> it's a movie about a sound man, Dan. What are you doing? <laughs> I know. We actually did mention it last time with Jacob as yeah, well. We and for some reason, 
I have not seen it since. So I'm just going to have to come back on this podcast and do that movie. But yeah, the ending is virtually the same, which is like a guy listening to a recording of a dead woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it's probably not as powerful for me as Blowout. Mm -hmm. It's not as as sort of resonant, but it does have a very similar sort of like melancholy and nihilistic view of the universe that correlates with the overall premise of the movie, considering that the opening, the first shot of the movie after the chess game is moving through that house and then pushing in on the answering machine. The last shot Mm -hmm. is pushing in on the answering machine. And I think that that the bookend, the sort of rhyming opening and ending, but then you're kind of coming back around to a different conclusion, which is that it doesn't matter if it was Saruti. It doesn't matter if it was Pa Keegan. It doesn't matter. It's all just trying to make order out of this stuff. And you're not going to do it. We're all trapped in this Kafka-esque rat trap, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I was struck by the scene with the chickens on amphetamines in the middle of the movie. <laughs> because it reminded me of the Radiohead song Fitter, Happier from OK Computer, where Tom York's assembled all of these 90s yuppie axioms and they're all being read out by a computer voice. And the last sentence that comes out is a pig in a cage on antibiotics. Oh, <laughs> oh, sure. And you get to see one of the chickens are sort of pecking away at one of their fallen comrades as mm. well. So it's yeah. there for a reason. None of it's by chance. No, I love the way Dodie says, they're all jittery. And he like <laughs> says it as if it's like a good thing or an exciting thing, you know? Yeah. You see, that's us. The chickens in a cage on amphetamines. <laughs> see, you always say the most brilliant shit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Are you as confused as we are stumbling into the Movie Awards? Hopefully we'll clear things up by nominating our favourite government conspiring parts of the film in a number of tank explosive categories. Best quote. Park Egan. Every line in this movie is quotable. Every uh, line. <laughs> the bit where he, he's in Nick's bedroom in the bathrobe with nothing on underneath apart from a, a really saggy pair of red underpants. Mm. Bizarre scene. <laughs> but he says to Nick, oh, you always had an excitable imagination. For a while, as a boy, I was afraid you might turn out to be a fag. And then Nick just replies, you're a real winner, Pa. (laughs) (laughs) But it is like the best response ever. You're a real winner, Pa. It's just the way that Jeff Bridges says it. I know, I know. I don't even know how to deal with you and your homophobic (laughs) nonsense. (laughs) So what, what was your favorite quote? Besides nominating what you said, which is literally everything that John Huston says in the movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> line that I love is only good if you've seen the movie and if you rewatch this part, because it's actually half visual, which is Jeff Bridges calls Anthony Perkins on the phone. It's the first time we see Saruti and getting trying to get advice. And, and he's getting off the phone with him and he just he's holding the phone up to his face and he just goes, don't panic. Panic is counterproductive. And as he's yeah. saying panic is counterproductive, he's like, the phone's not even at his ear anymore. He's just like hanging it up. <laughs> he saw this coming miles away in the data, I'm sure. <laughs> One of my favorite line deliveries is Anthony Perkins again. It's a it's very simple line, but it's just the way that he says it. Mm. When uh, Nick is sort of 
throwing lots of accusations at him, he says, don't snap at me, you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Most 70s moment. Uh, I, I feel like it might be because Jacob has picked yet another 70s government conspiracy movie but uh, <laughs> government conspiracy <laughs> is the, the most 70s part of this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's it. <laughs> I think the most 70s thing about this movie is the cast. Yeah. Oh. The, not just in terms of who they are, but the fact that you can have something like 20 amazing actors in this movie. You could never do that now. Yeah. You could barely get two of them to share the screen. I always remember listening to the wranglings that they had trying to get three women and Jack Nicholson to share the screen in The Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. And how difficult that was. I think the birth of the movie star and high concept movie making really was the death knell for assembling a cast of this kind of caliber all, all in one movie. It almost seems like the best casts are in movies like this that are like indie movies that no one's ever seen mm -hmm. and you kind of go wait all those people are in that movie mm -hmm. it's basically just like an entire cast full of people that you feel like tarantino would write a movie about oh yeah mm. <laughs> <Sure>. best <laughs> hair or costume again parky in in his his bathrobe and saggy saggy <laughs> yeah. red underpants that's mine too <laughs> that scene it's just a marvel to witness really he's, I agree. he's delivering this mm. very profound speech about moronic presidents and conspiracies and he's wearing that I've, I mean <laughs> he, huge praise mm. <laughs> I think what's what the most terrifying about it is that he just does not give a fuck which either means that he has absolute power or none at all and both right. are equally terrifying brilliant mm. I think the best costume in the movie by far and something that I just fucking loved was when Yvette walks in that restaurant in the three-piece uh, suit and the hat, yeah. mm. which is actually, I did some research on it. It was a fad that was started by Marlena Dietrich. Uh, she wore it to a premiere in 1932 and it caused so much controversy and basically started the whole like women wearing trousers. And I found some pictures with her wearing almost the exact same outfit oh, wow. that uh, Yvette is wearing in that scene. And that's where you have someone like Belinda Bauer, who's actually a professional model. That's where she really comes in handy because she wore that so well. I mean, she just walked in that restaurant and you know everything about her character. Yeah. Favorite scene. All right, so my favorite scene is by far Jeff Bridges on horseback, actually doing his own riding, mm. riding across the majestic salt flats with Vilma Zygmunt, who does anamorphic landscape photography mm. like nobody's business. Have you ever seen Deer Hunter? They're just like, it's just unreal. And you have basically Maurice Jarre doing, which we haven't really talked about that much, but his score is actually reminiscent of Lawrence of Arabia, mm. which is one of the most famous scores of all time that Maurice Jarre actually was the composer for. So he's riding across the salt flats and it's just like gorgeous photography jeff bridges is doing his own writing he's writing furiously he gets off the horse and he pulls the horse and the wind is blowing him the same way it's blowing t.e lawrence played by peter o'toole and lawrence of arabia <laughs> like the same way it's blowing his uh headdress saying or whatever and instead of yelling akaba akaba you know he, he yells you stink pa you stink <laughs> and it's such an elaborate expansive buildup to such a like wimpy line yeah mm. <laughs> 
Well, my favourite scene, you won't be surprised to hear, is the Anthony Perkins scene uh, when he's high on his gantry up in the gods and he's arguing with Nick, Jeff Bridges, and Nick is even threatening him with violence to try and get the truth out of him. He's desperate to get the truth out of him and he manages to break both of his arms and unfortunately, behind the scenes, the prop that he was using wasn't the dummy one, so he actually really did hurt Anthony Perkins. Wow. And you can sort of see him just using it in his performance because he genuinely looks shocked and he's sweating, but he carries on going anyway. Jeff Bridges does this one reaction that is just so beautiful because it's it's equal parts incredulity and just sheer misery it's like yes. a little ridiculous giggly laugh but you can see that he's just falling apart inside and it's so beautifully judged and sums up his predicament as a character so well i yeah i just love that moment that one moment thing like it felt like that was just jeff bridges going all the way with something mm. yeah he's fearless as an actor most cliche thriller moment my biggest thriller cliche for this movie is the high fall death at the end of the movie mm, sure. because that became particularly prevalent in the 80s i think but th so this may have been a, a forerunner for that and it's quite an impressive effect but again, it's subverted, like every other set piece in the movie, by having John Huston giving his son stock trading tips as he's plummeting to his death, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. And there's a really kind of great on-the-nose metaphor of like him ripping the flag in half. Mm. Yes. As and he's, he's basically down. like, as he dies, he's tearing apart democracy <laughs> or whatever. <you> know? <laughs> yeah. I found that that scene quite strange as well to watch because sound-wise, there's like nothing there. Like when he falls, mm. he doesn't scream. There's no impact sound. Mm. There's no score. It's just Jeff just yells and then his dad kind of floats away. And it's, <laughs> it's kind mm. of surreal almost yeah. watching. Purposefully, I think. But it is that thing where I feel like every age gets conditioned to a certain kind of thing and audiences have that expectation because, yes. I mean, you know, would you imagine even like 20 years ago having to put a disclaimer at the beginning of a movie like Last Jedi that when there's no sound for like five seconds and there's nothing wrong with the movie, it's just that you're so used to just like, how could there be no sound for five seconds in mm. a movie? You know mm. what I mean? Mm. Best special effect. Well, I mean, my favorite one was just because I love this kind of, I never get sick of models and matte paintings and stuff. When they're walking into Saruti's, what do you call it? Data center? I don't know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the Oz castle of tiles. <laughs> and they're walking across that catwalk and you have that overhead shot. Mm. So apparently that was done optically with like a model built and attached to the camera. Wow. Oh, wow. And then the matte painting was like inserted. I love it when they use the technique of like taking the matte painting and, and attaching it to the camera. Mm. Basically like holding mm. it up in front of the camera, which they used well into the 80s even, sure. where you just yeah. take this matte painting on glass. And then they actually have like a moving model that they would basically just like stick next to the lens, take the lens <laughs> really high up. So when yeah. you have... You know, them walking across the catwalk looks like that's part yeah. of it. Yeah. I thought it was natural building. That's that's incredible. It was flawless. Yeah. 
It's an amazing shot. But it looks like Return of the Jedi, which was actually after this. You know, it looks like、mm. the thing that Darth Vader throws the Emperor down. Right.、Yeah. yeah. Favorite sound effect. My favorite sound effect in the movie was Anthony Perkins' whimper. Oh yeah. <laughs> But I love that little noise he makes. He does it on like phone earlier.、Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like that whimper that Dustin Hoffman does in The Graduate. The little. And it's it's this great thing because he goes. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, you clown? You've broken my arm. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he's great. My favorite sound is from the same scene, actually, and it's when they are first arrive up there on. I think it's like a scissor lift or something, like a, a crane, and they they get up to this gantry, and there's this wonderful sound, like this high, breathy whistling noise that really gives you the sense of both technology and sort of. Being at great altitude somehow.、Right. Yeah. When I looked into it, it turns out that it's it's called a whirly tube, or a corrugaphone, and it's basically just a plastic tube, a corrugated tube with a bell on one end, and depending on the length, you get a different pitch. And、oh. I've heard it in scores before. Like I'm pretty sure that John Williams uses it in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Every time you see the sacred stones, you can hear this noise. And it's—I、right. think it's people swinging plastic tubes above their head. There you go. <laughs> That's great. Okay, I need to get one of those. That's awesome. Most, Most funniest, funniest moment. moment. So Jeff Bridges walks into this mansion apartment, you know, extravagant apartment, and he goes to his butler. I'll have a double, a double what, sir? And he keeps walking, doesn't answer. I'll have a triple. A triple what, sir? <laughs> and then we move on to the next part of that sequence where the maid. Tries to kill him, but tries to kill him with a sheet over his head.、Yes. And tries to, so this little short maid tries to wrap a sheet over his head and throw him over the side as if that's the best way to kill him, which is hilarious. <laughs> but before she can do that, he somehow rips a little hole in it. So he's like got a little hole where his face is. So he's got this sheet over his head. He's got this maid dressed like in the traditional kind of like. Classic French maid、mm. outfits, which I'm sure even in the '79 people weren't still wearing. It's like the, from the movie Clue or something. And it's like he's, he's looking out of this ghost thing, and he's like,、Whoa! and then he finally breaks free of her and rips her shirt open. Yes. And you have this like gratuitous, only in the '70s. I should have said this for the '70s moment. Only in the '70s, exposed breasts for no reason,、mm. and she's the killer. She runs off. <laughs> then he goes. I brought your drink, sir. <laughs> and then it has this amazing transition to the next scene where he goes. He's almost like too calm about it. He's like, the maid just tried to kill me. Will you stop her, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty amazing scene. Well, mine you've actually mentioned before, Jacob, which is the restaurant scene, which I found hilarious. Particularly, just the moment where she's challenged on we don't allow women with trousers、mm. in this restaurant, so she just takes them off, which、yeah. is a very elegant and daring solution, which I love. I love it,、mm. <laughs> and also just that she like gets up and leaves after, and she still has no pants on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she yeah. still has no pants on. Yeah, she didn't put them back on. <laughs> and that's our Mubli Awards. Yay!
Okay, we are back for the final verdict. Should Winter Kills be set free to smoke cigars in Philander as it pleases, or should it be left grasping at a US flag only to plummet 50 stories into the oubliette to be lost forever? Jacob, you are our guest. You picked this film. Final thoughts? I think I know what they are, but... (laughs) (laughs) I think I didn't bury the lead. I did start out with what I love about it. I'm getting the impression that you guys kind of feel a lot of the same way I do about it, unless there's like some surprise, unless you guys are doing the whole thing that you usually do where you're like, that was the most delicious cake ever made by a terrible cook that sucks at cooking. You know, here's what I'll say is the reason it shouldn't go in the dungeon is because it gets better every time I see it. And it becomes more interesting and profound every time I see it. And even the first time I saw it, I was never bored and I was never not fascinated by it. So I do think that if you watch it once and even if you don't connect with it the same way that you would if you watched All the President's Men or something or The Conversation, once you kind of take it on its own terms and you watch it again, you can really start to find it a brilliant thing. And if you really, it's also has that kind of Tarantino thing where you can, or Kubrick thing where you can watch it multiple times and get something new out of it every time. And I do think that those little like nuances of character that are just sprinkled all throughout every scene become funnier and more interesting. And it's almost like you get to hang out with characters you Mm. like. Mm. So Dan, what about you? Oh, right. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Knives out here. So I found this film deeply confusing and I I just didn't connect emotionally at all to this film and the bizarre scenes I understand it's supposed to be satire but I didn't understand it was supposed to be satire at the same time <laughs> so like most of the scenes I just ended up reacting huh what what just happened and I think this movie is much more of a, of a I guess an experience and the fact that it's all about lies and conspiracies and the film is, in fact, a huge lie and every lead is a lie and every character is a lie and then by the end of it you're just confused and I guess that's the point of the film. But I just felt deeply unsatisfied by the end of it. (laughs) But I feel like that's not the movie's fault. I feel like all the stuff that you mentioned was there if you decided to take it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing as well. I feel like all the things that I didn't like about it are pluses to the movie at the same time. My experience of the movie in itself is the point of the movie. Being confused and almost (laughs) not having any closure and not having any sort of emotional resolution is kind of the point of the movie and... Yeah, but mm-hmm. for me, that experience was not enjoyable. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's the metric, then, huh? Yeah. Well, it's down to you, Conrad. Final thoughts. For my part, I'm genuinely ambivalent about the movie. What? I don't think it's an enjoyable experience <laughs> to watch at all. Right. <laughs> but I do think it's an incredibly well written movie. 
that has untold riches to uncover the more times you watch it. And I think it's more relevant now than it probably was even at the height of the conspiracy fever in the 70s and post-Watergate. I think the ludicrous of it now, it seems to have reached a certain vintage for just how ridiculous the times are <laughs> today. Mm, yeah. So I don't think it should go in the oubliette because I think it spent far too much time in there already. I think it should be seen and appreciated I don't think it's necessarily going to be an enjoyable experience for everyone, at least not immediately. But I think if you're a serious connoisseur of cinema and or you love conspiracy thrillers, I think this really is mm. the ultimate end of conspiracy thrillers. I think this is the logical end of where conspiracy thrillers should go to die. And yeah. it's a brilliant capper to it. So I would save it on that basis and because it genuinely is an undiscovered gem that when you read out all of the accolades and all the people involved in it, the star power and the talent involved in it, you'll just be shocked that this thing exists and you didn't know about it. Mm. So yeah. I think it, it's worth discovering on that basis. So I'll, I'll save it on that basis and because of everything that Jacob said, which, as per usual, has blown my mind during the course of this <laughs> podcast. Ditto, man. I, you guys are always, you're so good at the fake out. And I would have thought you guys both love this movie. But then we get here and you're like, I did not enjoy watching this movie. And I'm like, what the <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you guys have gotten a little jaded, though, in 50 episodes. So I think you need to check yourselves in this quarantine period. <laughs> Okay, so I guess that means we are setting winter kills free to kill again. <laughs> Don't you want long days? Why do we want these short days? Let's kill winter. Lock it up. Lock it up. <laughs> so, Jacob, it's been fantastic having you on the show again. And I'm sure everyone listening has enjoyed your insights and would love to hear more from you and know what you've got coming up. So how can people follow you and what can we look forward to? I'm not particularly active on social media, so mm. it's just my name on all the platforms. I'm currently in post-production on a feature film mm. called Broadcast of Intrusion, starring the great Harry Shum Jr., um, wonderful actor, as well as actors like uh, Chris Sullivan, who you may know from as Taserface in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> but it is essentially a conspiracy thriller. That's kind of like why I'm so obsessed with these right now. It's It has that kind of structure, but it kind of takes the idea to a more modern framework. But who knows when anyone will ever see it and who knows if it will ever come out. But I've definitely had plenty of time to work on it. So yeah. sure. <laughs> It sounds fantastic. Do you know who's going to be scoring it at this point? Uh, yeah, my uh, composer who scored my previous movies uh benjamin lovett right oh. even if you haven't seen the movie i highly recommend you pick up the score for synchronicity my previous film he did a score which is just if you're a big vinyl fan that it's available on death welds i would highly recommend anybody just kind of check out that score because even if you hated the movie you, the, i think the score is like really worth listening to and and it's kind of a little audience of itself oh sounds great mm. well i for one am definitely looking forward to seeing your latest movie me too and if you're interested in keeping up with our latest output then please do follow us on all social media we're everywhere as movie oubliette and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com mm, and if you want to to support us even more, become a Patreon patron. Pay $1 and you get to nominate a film that we will discuss in a future episode. And $5 gets access to all of the bonus treasure trove of goodies that we have 
just waiting for you. It's exciting stuff in there too. Please, please, if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you are consuming us. Helps us out a lot. Yes, it, it really does. We've had a few guests recently, Conrad. Will someone be joining us next time? What film are we doing? Yes, we'll have a guest next time. In fact, we have two for the price of one, which is going to be interesting. And the film that our guests have chosen for us to discuss returns us to the 90s, my favourite decade. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) We'll be watching the 1997 monster horror film... The Relic. Oh, I do remember that film in high school. Yeah. It lives up to how I remember it. Yeah, I can't really remember a lot except it's in a museum and there's a monster. Yeah. That's about it. Pretty much the faculty, but in a museum. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm looking forward to rediscovering that. It's a BBC movie, oddly enough. So it's on the BBC iPlayer all the time. Yes, there's no excuse for all of you Brits to watch it then. No, not at all. Well, Jacob, it's been amazing having you with us again. I really, really appreciate you guys having me, and I, I look forward to listening to it and further episodes 51 to the next 50 after that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, listeners, for joining us on yet another cinematic journey. Bye for now. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. <laughs> Take these brass knuckles too, but don't lose them, they have sentimental value.